You're listening to the Cash Valley Insider, conversations with founders, leaders, and creators about why they live, work, and play in Cash Valley, Utah. The Cash Valley Insider is a production of the Cash Valley Chamber of Commerce. Become a chamber member and learn more at cashchamber.com. I want to welcome you today um, to the Cash Valley Chamber. Legislative Affairs Committee has sponsored this event of Meet the Candidates. And we are very privileged today to have um, uh, some very special candidates on, uh, on our Zoom today. We're excited. We're also on Facebook Live, and we will be um, uploading this to YouTube immediately after. Um, I want to start with a little introduction about us and who we are. Uh, Cash Valley Chamber of Commerce a Legislative Affairs Committee is very engaged in our legislative sessions and the interims. The co-chairs of the committee are Karina Brown and Chad Campbell, who direct our meetings. They organize subcommittees and identify key members of the chamber and the community to participate as the group meets weekly during our legislative session. At these weekly meetings, we invite subcommittees to present, to present legislative topics and areas of focus to the entire group. We also track the bills and identify those that we oppose, support, and want to monitor. Cash Valley Chamber belongs to the Northern Utah Chamber Coalition, which is nicknamed NUKE, and we submit our stronger opinions of our committee to NUKE. Um, then each Friday, NUKE meets with the Northern Utah legislators, and as our committee grows in numbers and influence, we'll continue to this highly uh, proactive approach to legislation. Um, beginning this series, we started in the summer. We started with some of our primary candidates in Cache Valley, and we are now hosting this. We've hosted this series all the way along. This is our last candidate forum. Um, we've invited the candidates, candidates running for the general election for Utah's governor and lieutenant governor. The members participating today are Republican candidates, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox and Senator Deidre Henderson and the Democratic candidates, Chris Peterson and Karina Brown. I'm told we're the, we're the first ones that have had all four of you together. We're very excited. Um, each response will have time limits and there will be a sound at the end of the time limit. Uh, please be civil and respectful. Each candidate has received the format and the questions ahead of time and we will rotate the order in which we ask the candidates to respond. So we're going to begin with Professor Chris Peterson, uh, then we'll go to Lieutenant Governor Cox, then Karina Brown, and then Senator Henderson. And the first uh, four minutes, we'd like you to include uh, your, an introduction of yourself, your qualifications, and a little bit about your platform. So we'll start with you, uh, Chris Peterson. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much to the Chamber of Commerce. It's great to be here. I'm excited to have a chance to share a bit about myself and about uh, uh, the issues we're facing in the state. Uh, I know that I'm the underdog in the race, but I'm, I'm excited to tell you a little bit about myself. You know, my 
great-great-grandfather led a wagon train of pioneers to the state of Utah in 1847. Uh, my family's been here for a long time. Uh, he became public school superintendent, uh, speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, and also was the first chairman of Zion's Bank and then became the third president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I, but I come from much more humble origins. I, I was raised by my single mom uh, who was disabled and I grew up in West Valley City. Uh, some of my uh, earliest memories were pushing my mom around in her wheelchair in the grocery store. And we had very, very limited income when I was a kid. I got my first job when I was about 10 or 11 years old and I used to pick up trash at a strip mall along uh, the 3500 South, which for those of you that know the Salt Lake Valley, it's very busy uh, uh, urban street. Uh, and I, I worked my way all the way through high school and college at the University of Utah. I was a janitor in college and swept the halls and worked at the library um, and eventually won a scholarship to go to law school. And uh, somewhere along the way, I decided that I wanted my career to be about public service. I turned down uh, job opportunities to work at fancy law firms and big banks because I wanted to spend my life mentoring people and teaching and doing public service, making the world a better place. And I've spent my career fighting for ordinary working families. I, I went back to Washington as a, a consumer rights attorney and, and tried to uh, uh, lobby Congress to have reasonable protections for our families to make sure that they uh, are, are not mistreated by debt collectors. And then eventually I uh, uh, became a law professor, wrote a book and, and uh, managed to make a reputation for myself and was really excited when the University of Utah invited me to come home and teach at my, at my alma mater. Uh, when my wife ma made sure that I accepted that job and we've been back. Uh, I did uh, in 2008 after the financial crisis, I was invited to work for the federal government uh, to help set up a new consumer protection agency. And I worked in the, uh, the law enforcement of that office designing cases to try to make sure that uh, uh, we had accountability when uh, uh, businesses didn't treat their customers fairly or, or misrepresented uh, uh, the, the things to their customers. And I'm proud that uh, my agency managed to return about $12 billion in refunds and restitution uh, to consumers all across America who were taken advantage of. And I also worked for the United States Department of Defense, the Pentagon, uh, and, and, and crafted rules to try to protect our military service members from predatory payday loans. And I'm excited that, and proud that received an award from the Secretary of Defense for my efforts, uh, you know, representing the White House and uh, sorry, representing the Pentagon in negotiations with the White House. But I'm back in Utah with my uh, my wife and my three kids. We've been married for about 20 years, and I'm running for governor because I want to try to make a difference for ordinary Utahns across the state. Some of the things that you can count me on me to focus on. First and foremost, I want to get this coronavirus outbreak under control. It's hurting too many businesses and it's hurting too many Utahns. And I'm hoping that we're going to talk about that later on in the debate or in the in the conversation today. Um, I also uh, want to make sure that I do everything I can to restore balance to our government. You know, one of the challenges of a one-party system is that uh, a one-party system doesn't uh, uh, allow for the kind of open negotiations and it can too often drift into not listening to the public. In the last election, we had three ballot measures that the public passed on Medicaid expansion, medical marijuana with the supervision of a physician, and also fair legislative redistricting, only to see the, uh, the state legislature uh, water down and gut significant provisions in those laws. That's not okay. I'll listen to the public and implement their vision. 
And then also, I want to make sure that we're focusing on the pocketbook issues that make a difference in the ordinary lives of people across the state, uh, including things like uh, uh, making sure they've got great schools to go uh, for their kids to go to. We're last in the nation in per pupil funding, and I've got to dedicate more resources to making sure that our kids have the opportunities that they need to succeed. We've also got to do a better job making sure that we increase and expand access to affordable health care. Uh, I'm very concerned that our state- That's your time. Oh, up to on time. All right. Thank you so much. I'll uh, uh, give it a, a stop there. Looking forward to the rest of the conversation. And I'm asking for your vote. Thank you, uh, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, next, Lieutenant Governor Cox. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you again um, in, in Cache Valley, albeit remotely. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. I was born and raised in the small town of Fairview, uh, about 100 miles south of Salt Lake City, right in the middle of the state in Sampy County, uh, raised on the farm that my great-great-great-grandfather settled over 160 years ago. And uh, we've been here ever since. We, we don't get out much. But uh, I, I did marry my high school sweetheart and, and uh, couldn't wait to get out, swore we would, we would uh, we would get out of there and never come back. And uh, we did that by going all the way to Snow College, which is uh, still in Sampy County. And, uh, but then we really did get away from home. And uh, we went all the way to uh, beautiful Cache Valley in, in Logan, um, where both my wife and I are proud Aggies. Uh, we, we loved our time in, in Logan and, uh, and, and get back as often as we, we possibly can. We still have family. Um, living in Cache Valley, and uh, it, it was just a, a magical time for us. After that, um, I, I too uh, got a chance to go to law school uh, back in Virginia, and then came back to work for a big law firm in Salt Lake City. And uh, it, there was a bumper sticker that uh, that changed our lives. It said that 99% uh, of attorneys give the other 1% a bad name. And uh, I will say that Chris is part of the one percent, the good, the good people. And uh, my my wife, uh, my wife said, uh, it, I actually asked her a question. I said, "Is the world a better place because of what I'm doing?" And uh, she said, as, as only a farm girl can, um, absolutely not. And so uh, that started a conversation. Uh, we decided to move back to, uh, to Sampy County, to Fairview, to raise our three boys and, and uh, had, a, had a little girl that was born after that and, uh, and, and got to run uh, the telecommunications company here in, in Fairview and a company that my great grandfather started in 1919. And my job was to figure out what to do when people no longer had telephones on their wall. And, and so I decided that this, uh, this internet thing might be for real back in 2003. Um, we went all in on fiber optics and uh, expanded onto the Wasatch Front and across rural Utah. We doubled in size during the Great Recession and uh, the company is thriving today. Shortly after moving back, a friend of mine came to me and said, we have a vacancy on the city council and we've decided to appoint you. And uh, I was flattered and asked him why. And he said, because we, uh, we can't get anyone else to do it. And uh, we have a big legal problem and we can't afford uh, an attorney. And we we're hoping you would do free legal work for us. So that's how I got involved in, in public service. I got a chance to serve as a, as, a, as a mayor after that, and then as a county commissioner. And then I got elected to the House of Representatives, where I served for a long and fruitful nine months before, out of nowhere, Governor Herbert asked me to serve as his lieutenant governor. That was seven years ago yesterday, and uh, it's been a, a, an incredible seven years. I've loved the opportunity I've had to serve. Um, but uh, about a year ago, the governor came and asked me if I'd be willing to uh, to run for governor as he decided not to. 
hard decision for our family, but we ultimately decided to do it because we wanted to focus on a couple areas that are just critical for, for our state. We wanted to keep the economic development rolling, and uh, we've been the, the, the best economic state in the country over the past 10 years. We're very proud of that, and coming through the coronavirus, um, the fewest job losses of any state in the nation. Number two was a focus on education. I believe that education is a great equalizer, and that far too many of our kids are getting left behind, especially in rural Utah and uh, in parts of urban Utah as well. And we need to focus there. We have a teacher shortage. Um, we have to solve that teacher shortage and make sure that teaching is a destination profession for uh, people here in the state of Utah. And then we have to solve the growth issues that are happening, especially along the Wasatch Front. The price of housing is rising unsustainably. We'll talk a little bit more about that um, later in this, in this conversation. Uh, but we've, we've had such a, an enormous success over the past 10 years. And we, we believe firmly that the next four years are going to be even better. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, we'll go to Karina Brown. Thank you, Cash Valley Chamber of Commerce, for the invitation to participate in this candidate forum. I'm Karina Brown, the Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor, and I'm honored to be on the ballot with Professor Chris Peterson for Governor. He's honest, intelligent, and compassionate. And I'd like to say thanks to Lieutenant Governor Cox and Senator Henderson for joining us today. I appreciate your service and hard work. Today, I'd like to talk about who I am and why I'm running. I'm a wife and mother of four children, community organizer, and our family lives in Nibley and we call Cash Valley home. My husband Carl and I moved around for school and his Air Force military service before settling in Utah. My ancestors were Utah's, Utah pioneers. This year has been hard watching all of us adjust to this new reality of life during a pandemic. Our second daughter graduated from high school in May along with thousands of other Utah students. I want the upcoming generation to feel hope that we can peacefully and powerfully resolve problems together whether it is public health investment and preparation, social justice issues, quality education, or strengthen the economy. Communities trust their government when they can see themselves reflected in it. This means having a diverse collection of thoughts and backgrounds at the decision-making table. As Lieutenant Governor, I would work to make space for individuals of all backgrounds and races, Latino, Asian, Black, and Indigenous communities, Pacific Islander, White, Millennials and seniors, abled and disabled, religious and non-religious, because I know that Utah's strength comes from our diversity. I am an advocate. After my mother passed away, due in part to the healthcare coverage gap, I knew I had to act to help vulnerable Utahns. Nonprofit leaders, healthcare organizers, and legislators taught me how to use my voice and channel it into meaningful action. It was an honor to participate as one of five sponsors of Proposition 3 to expand Medicaid. Thanks to the work of many and the majority of Utah voters, this important ballot initiative passed. This experience taught me the power of civic engagement, unity, and voting to make a difference. I'm no stranger to public service. Currently, I serve as the president of the Friends of the Cache County Children's Justice Center Board because I care about helping child abuse victims. I sit on the Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors as co-chair of this Legislative Affairs Committee because business development and meaningful legislation is vital. I serve as a planning commissioner for the city of Nibley because I want to see diverse housing options in my city, and I'm also a governing board member for Logan Regional Hospital because quality healthcare and the hospital community relationship is important. Working for the public good is something I love and I'm ready to bring it to the office of Lieutenant Governor. So why am I running? The Lieutenant Governor maintains oversight over elections, campaign finances, lobbyists, document authentication and annexations in addition to other duties. Our fundamental right to vote is one of the most important rights we can exercise. From the highest positions in government to the most important state and local officials, voting helps to shape our communities and the processes around us. 
If elected, my priorities as Lieutenant Governor would include exploring expanded ranked choice voting, promoting the success of Utah's vote by mail system, researching secure and cost conscious online voting for elections, advocating for statewide election campaign finance reform, opening communication with county clerks, and protecting Utah's online voter registration database. Beyond electoral issues, I am passionate about ensuring we have quality education and housing, ending homelessness, having access to affordable childcare, environmental stewardship, quality healthcare, mental health, abuse prevention, fair taxes, rural business development, building bridges between the public and law enforcement, and payday lending reform. I would also work as an ambassador for Utah to the country and world. If elected Utah's second female lieutenant governor, I would fight to ensure Utahns make their voices heard through voting and civic engagement. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. Uh, next, uh, Senator Henderson. Well, thank you very much, and Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation, and I appreciate um, being on the ticket with, with such uh, great people. I, I really do. And my name is Deidre Henderson. I'm in the Utah State Senate, and I will get this out of the way really quick. Um, I uh, came down with coronavirus a couple of months ago, and my lungs are still healing. So I've been on and off oxygen. I'm on it again now um, and uh, uh, have a firsthand experience of um, how devastating this disease can be. Um, you, you don't have to be killed by it to be uh, severely affected by it. And, and that's one of the things that I think is really important for the public to understand. Um, my husband uh, brought it home. Uh, we don't know where from. Um, and uh, five of us uh, ended up coming down with it because we we don't wear masks around each other at home. And so uh, that was uh, that happened to us a week before our daughter's wedding in August and we had to postpone that wedding. And um, anyway, I'm just grateful it wasn't working or worse and my, my heart goes out to, to everybody who's been affected by this, both physically and economically. It's been, a, it's been an, an interesting year, a, a good year in some ways and a devastating year in a lot of ways. And so um, I'm really excited for the opportunity to work with Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox on this issue and many others. Um, I was elected to the Utah State Senate in 2012. Uh, I've never planned on running for elected office. It wasn't part of my life goal, um, but I had always been uh, interested in politics and the political process and, and engaged in that. Um, and in 2008, I became uh, more engaged. Um, like, like Karina, um, I, I learned the, uh, the value of the voice and learned that one person can make a difference. And I, I stepped in and, and started volunteering for a congressional campaign, ended up becoming a political director and then a campaign manager and running that political operation, essentially from my laundry room in Spanish work for several years um, before a state Senate seat opened up in my area in 2012. And then I decided to run for that. It's been an incredible experience. Um, I don't come from uh, a famous dad or a lot of money or, or anything like that. And, I, and I, I, I love the fact that our political process can take uh, regular average people such as myself um, and, and help us to become that voice uh, for our communities. It's an incredible process. It's an incredible honor. Uh, for the past several years, I have, um, for the past almost eight years now, I've served on the Senate Revenue and Taxation Committee. I chaired it for four years. Uh, I also served on the Business and Labor Committee, helping to streamline and, and, and cut bureaucratic red tape for our, um, our state small businesses. Uh, the past few years, I have served as the chair of the Senate Education Committee. Um, it's a very important topic to me. 
Um, I pride myself on my work with government transparency. Someone once told me that nobody cares about government transparency unless you're trying to take it away. Um, but I have been an advocate for increasing and expanding that transparency because I believe it's very important um, to holding government accountable, holding elected officials accountable, and making sure that our taxpayer money is spent well and spent wisely and that everybody knows where that money is going. Um, I have also worked on uh, making sure that our small businesses have better access to um, the economy. Um, I worked uh, on the food truck legislation for several years um, and actually we created a, a banner um, legislation uh, that became a standard for many other states in the nation. Um, and it's been, um, it's been an incredible honor to serve in the Utah State Senate. I have five kids, four daughters and one boy. Uh, my youngest is 17, she's a senior in high school. And my husband Gabe and I have been married for 27 years um, and uh, um, we look forward to, to continuing our service here in the state. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Henderson. Uh, we're gonna start with a series of questions. Um, question number one is, what do you think we as a state ought to do to prepare for the next pandemic? And we'll start with Lieutenant Governor, then Chris Peterson, Senator Henderson, and then Karina Brown. Thank you, Jamie, and, and, and hopefully you can hear me. I think we got this right. Um, so we're, we're going to try to, of course, divide these questions up a little bit. And, uh, and, and I want to talk about what we've learned over the past six months. Um, so Utah is known across the country as the most prepared state. Um, we, we routinely win awards for being incredibly prepared. We work on things like earthquake safety and, uh, and, and wildfire safety. And we work on pandemic safety as well. Um, we had held many uh, tabletop exercises and others with the best experts in the country uh, before the coronavirus hit. And uh, there's one thing I learned about the experts and uh, that's that they were all wrong. They were all wrong by magnitudes. What they had told us was a worst case scenario ended up being about a hundred times worse than, uh, than what, what they had told us. And so every, uh, every state was caught um, not prepared for, uh, for, for what we've seen. Uh, th there are a few things and I know Senator Henderson is, is going to touch on this, but um, one of the things that we learned very early on um, about a month into this was this idea of a unified command, and that is bringing the, the response from local government agencies, state government agencies, and federal government agencies together every single day uh, to coordinate the response and what is happening out there. Um, we have about 250 people that are working every single day in, in responding to, uh, to this virus. Um, the, the other piece is that we desperately need um, a federal government that is more responsive to the states. Um, what, what the federal government is doing on the vaccine side is, is really incredible and, and is to be lauded, um, but they completely dropped the ball on the testing side. And every time we have tried to get tests, unfortunately, Utah only represents about 1% of the, uh, the population of the, the country. And every time we get access to new testing uh, equipment and, 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 uh, and um, testing innovation, the federal government has taken that away from us. And and deployed it elsewhere. And so that's been a true struggle for us. But we have some incredible ideas on what to do to prepare for the next uh, pandemic. And I'm going to let Senator Henderson talk about those because my two minutes is up. All right, let's go to, uh, let's go to Chris Peterson. 
Hey, everybody. Well, first off, it feels like this question is a little bit like talking about changing the smoke detectors while the house is on fire, because we have a serious crisis going on right now. But that being said, uh, I think that there's a I have you know, nine steps that I would identify for creating great disaster management plans. First off, we need to create performance objectives for not just the next pandemic, but other emergencies. Second, we need to review uh, uh, different threat scenarios or hazards that might be out there to identify all the different potential crises uh, that could be that could have come come our way and then third we've got to assess the availability and capability resources that we have uh, for stabilizing and addressing these problems get a menu of the assets that we have to try to deal with problems the fourth step is to talk with all the different emergency service providers and agencies that might become relevant in each of the different threat scenarios that could uh, develop uh, uh, and then uh, 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 fifth we need to determine uh, um, uh, we need to determine if there are uh, legal challenges or obstacles to deploying those resources and come up with a, a, an overall uh, legal plan to make sure that we've got uh, the right responses ready to go. And then six, we need to develop a, a, a hazard or threat specific uh, emergency procedures for each of the uh, hazards that we've talked about or scenarios that we've identified. And then, uh, and then uh, 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 what am I on? I think I'm on seventh now. We've got to coordinate our emergency planning with all the different public emergency services and agencies that are uh, are relevant and make sure that they understand what the planning is for each of those different threat scenarios. And then we need to start training our people to make sure that they're ready to respond. And then finally, as we have, I think, been doing in some instances, we need to make sure that we're doing tabletop exercises, scenarios that respond, not scenarios, but simulations is the word I'm working for, to make sure that we are ready to go for the different potential hazards that could come our way. That's, a, that's an overall framework for how I would approach making sure that the government is ready to respond to all the different crises that could come our way. Of course, that being said, we need to make sure that we're not planning for the next war. And we also need to make sure that we're uh, planning and, and spending our resources wisely. I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. Uh, Senator Henderson. Thank you. Um, this is something that uh, Spencer and I actually talked about and, and, and put forward a plan about uh, many months ago, early in, into the pandemic. We actually looked at this, we put together um, a plan called Resilient Utah. Um, it's really important that we plan for the future, but we can't possibly, we, we can't you know, read minds, we can't divine what's going to happen in the future, but we can do our best to learn from the things that we've experienced and things that have been experienced in the past and plan for those in the future. And so some of the things that we, we have in our Resilient Utah plan, um, the number one thing is we, we've got to make sure that we're in a good spot with our supply chains, with our critical supply chains. Uh, one of the things that has caught a lot of people flat-footed is globalization. And we were very reliant on global supply chains and what happens when those global supply chains are just disrupted. Um, that was one of the biggest problems that we experienced early on in this pandemic. So we need to make sure that we're near sourcing critical manufacturing, that we're developing and maintaining um, our supply chains. And we've also, um, we've figured out how to telework. Again, this is something that uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox was working on long before the pandemic, was figuring out how to get people to be working from home, which solves a lot of problems. Um, and, and now we've had to figure out how to do that on a grand scale, um, which will actually potentially save the state a lot of money. We've figured out online education and telehealth, and we're still figuring out some of those things and making them smooth, but this is actually a good time for us to, to, to prepare, um, to make sure that we have access to those things in, in the future. 
And then finally, we've really got to make sure that we replenish our state's rainy day fund. And we do that by making sure that we have a good economy, a strong economy with excess revenues that are coming into the state. Our rainy day fund really saved us this year when we had to uh, redo the budget. Um, and uh, both the, the regular rainy day fund and the working rainy day fund are critical components to making sure that we're prepared uh, for the next pandemic. Thank you. And finally, uh, Karina, Karina Brown. Okay, thank you. Uh, what is most important for our preparation for this pandemic and the next pandemic is to let public health and medical professionals lead. And we can do this by creating open communication and investing public health dollars in prevention and planning. And as we know, unfortunately, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and judging by the negative impact on certain businesses and industries in Utah, some Utahns still do not feel uh, comfortable being in public. There should be a statewide plan with contacts in each county if there isn't already. Uh, we have a plan for earthquakes that I've, I've heard about uh, that has been publicized well in Utah, and we should treat public health emergencies the same way. And I think having automatic triggers in place can be helpful so we don't see ourselves in a situation played out on the national level of a stalemate on relief for Americans. Potential emergency responses such as mass mandates should be considered as temporary measures to curb the spread of the virus. It is important to help to have trusted community partners in place that can help mitigate fears and promote real facts and pair this with tr trusted local officials stationed to help stop the spread of misinformation online. We should store emergency PPE equipment so we are self-sufficient as a state. I've been impressed with the coronavirus.utah.gov um, as a useful source of public health and business information, so continue with a similar resource. The pandemic has exposed inequities in healthcare in different communities and information distribution to minority communities. So form partnerships and build relationships with those communities for continual public health improvements. That way, when emergencies arise, the strong relations, relationships have already been formed. It's, an important, uh, it's important to create an emergency plan for business and education. We have seen frontline workers at higher risk, such as the meat packing plant workers in Cache County, and students without internet access or technology resources. Broadband internet access would help with business, education, and healthcare needs dur during a pandemic and all the time. Improve testing resources, quality, and turnaround time, and promote healthcare access for all Utahns and budget for a Medicaid enrollment marketing plan. In addition, prepare for the potential repeal of the Affordable Care Act because Utah is in a lawsuit with other states to repeal it. The case will go to the Supreme Court in November, so preparing for potentially thousands of vulnerable Utahns without healthcare coverage is crucial. Thank you. Okay, our next question is, since some sectors of Utah's economy has been decimated, like tourism and others, uh, how do you propose we go about helping uh, these businesses and organizations? We'll start with Karina Brown, then Senator Henderson, Chris Peterson, and then finishing with Lieutenant Governor Cox. Okay, thank you. To help the Utah tourism industry and other businesses and organizations, we need communication, creativity, and collaboration. It is interesting because some businesses are thriving, such as the real estate, um, home sales, car sales, and home improvement stores. Some businesses are not doing well, such as restaurants. I recently read 453 Utah restaurants have gone out of business recently. Personal care businesses like aestheticians, masseuses, and nail salons have struggled. I, re I visited the VW dealership in town and they can't keep the cars in stock. And it was recently reported that there were less than 100 homes on the market in Cache Valley, when normally at this time there's over 600. Small businesses need attention, information, and resources. Big businesses have an army of accountants, lawyers, and employees to help navigate the system. And Utah small businesses need extra resources and support to help them succeed, especially during a pandemic. First, we need communication. 
Messaging should be clear about how to safely eat out, go to the movies, and other activities so the public is less afraid and will venture out. The Chamber of Commerce information is important to share with businesses as well as the website coronavirus.utah.gov to get up-to-date information for both public health and business. Next, we need creativity. Creative problems solving can be fostered on Zoom forums so businesses can get feedback on challenges they face or how to adapt their businesses to meet the needs of customers. There should be a strong public health focus at the state and local county health department level to get the virus under control so tourists are comfortable visiting. It was recently reported that Utah was one of the top virus hotspots in the country. Finally, we need collaboration. One example is marketing tourism in a fun way. Julie Hollis Terrell of Logan did a radio ad for the America West Heritage Center to advertise the drive-through baby animal days. A sense of humor helps lighten the mood. An increase in tourism will help other industries such as restaurants, hotels, and other businesses. I was proud of Cache County to read about a restaurant collaborative food truck delivery several months ago. And it's also important to continue to work with the Governor's Office of Economic Development for a statewide coordinated economic and public health response. Thank you. Perfect, thank you, Karina. Uh, next, uh, Senator Henderson. Thank you. Um, well, uh, look, we could definitely be doing better uh, with our economy. Um, and, and, and with some of these efforts, but I, I do want to point out that, um, that Utah's economy is among the best in the nation still. Our unemployment rate is among the best in the nation still. Um, I was just recently in Washington, D.C., and it was really interesting for me uh, to, to compare the ghost town of Washington, D.C. with some of the activity that's, that is happening here in the state of Utah. Um, I think uh, unfortunately, um, the thing that will help our economy the most right now, help businesses the most right now, is something that has become far too politicized and divisive, and that is just wearing a stinking mask in public. I mean, if we want to make sure that we can have our ball games and, you know, go to the theater and, and do all of the things that we want to do, um, that, that's just a critical component um, to, to making sure that we're protecting the public health and protecting the economy until we have a vaccine and other um, adequate treatments that are available to everyday Americans. So I, I, that to me is the number one thing. It's so simple and it's something that should not be controversial in any way, shape or form. And it unfortunately has been, but I, I do wanna give a shout out to our business community. Uh, our businesses have been really helpful actually in, in helping us with this and, and partnering with the state to make sure and that they're asking their uh, consumers and their customers to wear masks when they come into their businesses. So. Uh, to me, that's, you know, that, that's probably the best thing right now that we could do. I mean, we can, we can give cash payments and, and all of those things have been helpful. Um, uh, and my husband uh, is a physical therapist. He has, um, his business has, has been severely impacted by this and, and by, by not having um, adequate access to, uh, people not having adequate access to um, uh, elective procedures, for example. And so it, it's something that, uh, you know, if we want to, if we want to stop this, we need to just do better at wearing masks. Thank you. Uh, next, we'll hear from Chris Peterson. Hey, everybody. Well, um, 
So uh, Karina already talked about some of the great strategies we can do to try to help our tourism industry. Uh, I want to focus on what I think is the biggest obstacle for businesses around the state right now, and that's getting the coronavirus crisis under control. And when I talk about some of the plan, that I, you know, I have an 11 point plan for how I believe that we need to, to, to get a hold of this, and what we need to do to get a hold of this. And I think it's the most important thing in the election right now. And first off, I think that we don't need to just, we need to just stop talking about how people should wear masks, and we need to impose a statewide mask mandate. Dozens and dozens of states have done this. Most of the countries that have been successful in getting their virus under control have been, have done exactly that. And I, I think that, look, you know, I, I realize that we don't like mandates in this state, but we also do have mandates from time to time. Things like speed limits, you can't run through traffic signs, you can't show up to work without your pants on. We do do mandates, even though we are, and I am a freedom-loving person. But we right now we need a temporary emergency mask mandate with reasonable exceptions. And until we do that, we're going to continue to see infections going out of control. We have to take care of one another. Second, we've got to get our testing capacity up to speed. Uh, I know that we've been trying, but we have to do better. We need all tests processed within 24 hours. And many, uh, uh, many healthcare providers are still turning people away, demanding appointments, coming up with excuses not to get the job done. Third, we've got to increase by tripling our contact tracers. So we can track down, once we get the infection rates to get back down under control, we've got to spot infections when they're developing and get people safely quarantined. Fourth, we've got to have more protective equipment available for frontline workers, whether that's in the meat packing plant up in Hiram or in our public schools across the state. And we need the best quality protective equipment, not just cloth masks, but for people who are in contact with the public, we've got to have N95 respirator masks, gloves, and other uh, eye protection to try to uh, have the same quality of care that we're getting in our hospitals. Finally, we need to stop spending money on things that don't work. Uh, we should be focusing on doing things like having our clinics back open, low-income clinics, and we can't count on a vaccine. I'm hoping, we'll hope for the best, but we need to plan for the worst. Thanks. Uh, Lieutenant Governor. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. So I, I appreciate everything uh, that we've, we've talked about so far. And I want to share some of the things that we've been doing uh, for our businesses. The question was about uh, what we can do to help those businesses that are struggling right now. And uh, Utah has done this better than any other state in the nation. Again, the fewest job losses of, of any state, uh, the lowest unemployment every month. Uh, Nebraska passed this by a tenth of a percent this last month. And, and the way we've been able to do that, uh, there, there are several things. Um, first of all, the, the PPP loans. Um, Utah did a better job of getting those loans out to businesses more per capita than any other state in the nation. That helped keep doors open. Um, we launched the Stay Safe, Stay Open campaign, which uh, we are now outreaching to thousands of businesses every week uh, to help them take the Stay Safe, Stay Open pledge in which we share with them best practices so that they can prevent the spread of the coronavirus in their business. And of course, that helps customers to feel safe coming in. Um, second of all, we, we have had millions of dollars of grants to help businesses purchase items that they need to safely open and stay open. As well as uh, just recently, we, we launched one of the first dates in the nation. We, we launched grants to help pay for employees to quarantine. Um, one of the problems we have is there some employees that just can't take time off, employers who can't cover their, their salaries while they're out, and they end up coming to work sick and infecting many other people. Uh, through this grant program, businesses can, uh, can still pay their employees and keep their doors open and uh, make sure that they're quarantining. The other thing that we need to do, and uh, we have, we have, we're measuring this, we've been working with higher education and uh, our UTech institutions to reskill and re-educate our employees for jobs that, uh, that are open and uh, that, that are needed 
needed to help people find better jobs and to move forward. And finally, just, just last week, we launched a new website for hot jobs, um, people who have lost their jobs. There are thousands of jobs available right now in the state of Utah. And I want to say some of these jobs are coming back to Kane County just had their best tourism month ever in the history of, uh, of Kane County this last month. And we're excited to see those jobs coming back. Thank you. Uh, question number three is as follows. With growth projections for Utah and also for Cache Valley, how do you propose we balance growth with infrastructure needs and still continue the quality of life that we have currently? And the order uh, in response will be Senator Henderson first, then Karina Brown, then Lieutenant Governor, and then Chris Peterson. Senator Henderson. Thank you very much. So this is really a, a, a good question, and it's a question that we get a lot. It's, it's uh, on a lot of people's minds. Um, Utah is one of the highest growing states in the nation, and Cache Valley, as, as much as Utah is growing as a state, Cache Valley is exceeding um, our growth rate. And, and so this is something that, that is critical uh, throughout our state, but especially particularly in Cache Valley. Um, one of the things that we've been doing, I think, wrong in the state that, that Lieutenant Governor Cox and I are intent on, on fixing and, and working on is the way we do economic incentives. Um, we have been incentivizing businesses as a state uh, to, to come to the Wasatch Front, which is uh, silly. Um, it, it's, it's something that we do because other states do it, and it's something that we, we, we need to change and we need to, to uh, revamp the way that we're doing that. And that's something that we, we are planning to do. Um, we, we don't need to incentivize people to come where the most population lives. We need to um, look at incentivizing people to go, uh, businesses to go to the, the more rural parts of the state in, a, in an effective manner. Um, in, in a recent, uh, a couple years ago, we, I, I did a legislative tour in some of our rural counties where they talked about some of the county commissioners um, in, in our southern Utah rural counties were talking about how their their greatest export was their children. And to me, that was just profoundly sad. Um, as a mother of five, I, I want nothing more than for my children to be able to grow up and get jobs and live nearby me. Um, that's, that's part of uh, what, what I think the American dream is, is having your family around you. And opportunity is at the heart of that American dream. And we need to make sure that we're preserving that opportunity for our kids and grandkids. And we need to do that through making sure that we have those um, economic incentives and, and other opportunities in the rural parts of our state, um, that is a key for making sure um, that we can grow in, in a way that doesn't um, continue to disrupt the balance of, of people and, and um, air quality problems and, and other uh, infrastructure issues along the Wasatch Front. Thank you. Karina? Okay, thank you. I think it's important that we look at growth in our area as an opportunity to innovate in a strategic way. And of course, Utah will continue to grow and Cache Valley will continue to grow. And it's important to take on the philosophical viewpoint that our diversity is our strength and have a spirit of welcoming uh, to people from out of state uh, in the country that choose to make Utah their home. Um, infrastructure is the basic, are the basic systems that undergird the structure of the economy. And examples of in infrastructure include transportation facilities, telecommunications networks, roads, bridges, and water supplies. And infrastructure investment can be a catalyst for economic growth. And good relationships and planning are important when considering infrastructure and growth. Um, coordinated planning across Cache Valley in the state is important. For example, work with UTA for bus routes in those areas uh, that they serve or the Cache Valley Transit District here. 
cooperation between different cities and towns is important when it comes to roads development and annexations. And rural broadband would be valuable to help with education, telehealth, and work. And this could also potentially help farmers utilize precision agriculture to optimize their scarce resources and create more efficiency in their work. And as Senator Henderson mentioned, business development and opportunities should be spread throughout the state so there is not such a heavy demand on the Wasatch Front infrastructure. On a trip to Moab several weeks ago, I spoke with a Moab Chamber employee who said that teleworking makes, with teleworking, they expect to see more people moving to Moab, which will help their schools, businesses, and overall economy. And as we plan for increased growth in Utah, preserving open space and planning for parks and agriculture is important. As I mentioned before, we have lived all over the country for my husband Carl's Air Force service and seen how open space can be preserved and how it contributes to the health of the community. We need to develop an aggressive water conservation plan in Utah. Utah has the highest municipal water usage rate in the country. And in addition, agritourism should be considered in Utah counties and Cache County so farmers can keep their land, remain in business, and provide a job for tourists. Thank you. Okay, next we'll go to the Lieutenant Governor. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, one of the things I love about these forums is that we get to uh, we get to share these ideas. And what you'll find is we actually agree on lots of things. Uh, in fact, um, so much of what Karina uh, just shared are, are things that I wanted to share too. And, and I, I love that about uh, about us and about our state. But um, th there's a very simple formula that people are tired of me sharing but it's so important. And that is when infrastructure precedes growth, the quality of life stays high. And uh, when, when uh, growth precedes infrastructure, the quality of life goes down. And, and sometimes we think about growth as, as a negative thing, um, when, it, it, when again, it's the infrastructure piece that really drives that. We have been the fastest growing state in the nation over the last 10 years. We're almost number one or two um, every year for our birth rates, uh, but we have also seen a huge in-migration as people have discovered Utah as an incredible place to, uh, to work and raise a family. Part of that growth is because our economy has been so so dominant that people are coming here because there are jobs available but I think we all care most about is a place where we can as Senator Henderson said where we can raise that our that our own kids can stay and find good jobs and so that infrastructure um, development is absolutely critical but but also the regional planning perspective of this um, every city the best decisions are made at the local level but when local local officials are collaborating and working together that's where we get the best outcomes um, I would encourage people to go to look at Wasatch Choice 2050, uh, just put online. Um, this has been a comprehensive planning effort that has happened along the Wasatch Front, showing what the Wasatch Front could look like in 2050 as communities work together to show where the growth is going to be and where we don't want the growth to be, where we want to preserve open space. Um, we can have growth around transit hubs. I'm very excited about the Point in the Mountain, um, the, the moving the prison there. Um, I've been chairing the Point in the Mountain Authority Board. That development is going to show that we can, we can have density, we can work and, and, uh, and play and, uh, and live in, in, in the same area. Um, and, and it has the potential to be one of the first carless developments in the, in the country, uh, which is really, really exciting to show that growth doesn't have to be a negative. Thank you. Uh, Chris Peterson. You know, I, I actually agree with um, uh, the Lieutenant Governor on this. I, there are a lot of things that, that both sides of the aisle on infrastructure agree about. Um, and I, I, I'm really glad to hear about that because um, I share the commitments of rural broadband. I share the commitment to trying to find transit hubs uh, and also, especially along the more densely packed 
portions of the of the Wasatch Front, uh, diverting some of our infrastructure development dollars more towards transit to try to decrease the uh, air pollution that we're facing uh, uh, in the Cache Valley as well as down in Salt Lake and, and Davis County and uh, Utah County. Um, it went, a couple things that I'll mention too that we haven't talked about though. I, I am uh, very concerned about the long-term prospects for climate change. You know, reasonable minds disagree about whether or not climate change is happening and whether or not it's caused by humans, but reasonable scientists do not. Any, all of the virtual unanimity of scientists that are studying this agree that it's one of the greatest challenges that we're facing. Um, uh, Spencer talked, or the Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor Cox talked about uh, uh, the projections for growth uh, out to uh, 2050. In 30 years, we may be facing radical changes to the amount of available water that we have in this state uh, and significant changes to our overall climate. And we've got to make sure that we're our business planning and life, you know, quality of life plans are, are accounting for that. Uh, did you know that uh, now Next Era Energy just exceeded, which is at Next Era Energy is a, is a solar power wind power plant company. They're now more valuable than Exxon is, uh, which is uh, part of one thing I'd like to add is we need to be focusing on clean energy jobs in this state because they can be out in more rural areas. Uh, they increase our quality of life. They decrease air pollution and they're really profitable. Um, we need to be focusing on uh, 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 solar power, wind power, and we have the third largest untapped geothermal energy reserves in America right here in the state of Utah. And we haven't done nearly enough on that. But that being said, I agree with a lot of the things that have been mentioned already. Thank you. Our final question for today, and I just want to thank each of our, our candidates for participating. It's been really great to have you. Um, how do you propose we balance continued cost increases in housing against the slow rise in wages? This is a particular problem that we face in Cache Valley. Um, and maybe not some other places in the state, but I would imagine other rural ones. So we'll start with Chris and then we'll go with Spencer, Karina, and then Deidre. Great. So first off, we need to have living wage jobs in our state, and we need to make sure that the governor's office of economic development is doing everything it can for the incentives that it's getting out to make sure that we're, we're giving people the kind of wealth that they need, not just have a job. I mean, we, we have a low unemployment rate. We're doing that right. But what we don't have enough of are careers where people can really build a family around them. And we need to make sure that we're getting that blend of, of investment right. And then second, I think that I, 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 for um, um, uh, affordable housing. I think that we need to be doing everything we can to make sure we're incentivizing uh, uh, investment in affordable housing stock, uh, especially in areas uh, that are more densely packed and more urban and that surround transit hubs as they uh, start to evolve with our transit plans. Uh, because we've got to have the housing there in order for people to have a chance to buy it. So we need to increase the supply and we also need to increase the availability of or the uh, ability of people to pay for those uh, uh, for that housing. Uh, and that third thing I'll mention is, uh, you know, I I think that, it, that we have to get the incentives right in terms of our support for organized labor. I, I believe in business, I'm pro-business, but we also need to have a place in this state for people to engage in collective bargaining to make sure that they're getting fair wages and workplace safety. And, and I lean a bit more uh, along the lines of organized labor than I think some do. Um, that being said, that's not, you know, unions don't always have it right. It's just that the pendulum needs to be uh, a little bit more back in their direction, I think, in the future. And then uh, fourth, I'll mention that I think that we need to raise our minimum wage in this state. You know, 
our minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour, which creates downward pressure on wages. Uh, other states and cities that have increased their minimum wage are doing well because more people who are at the bottom of the income ladder have more money in their pocket to circulate right there in the local community. Uh, uh, minimum wage laws have actually been effective in promoting economic development across the board and also making uh, housing a little bit more affordable. So uh, uh, I'll be looking uh, also to try to increase a, or improve our homelessness management plan with a homelessness coordinator uh, that coordinates homelessness resources all across the state. Thank you. Spencer? Yeah, so inherent in this question, Jamie, I, I think there are two parts to it. One, of course, um, we, we want to increase people's ability to afford homes. And uh, we do that through education. And, and that's why I believe we need a significant investment in um, our, our youth tech institutions, our, our trade and technical colleges in this state, as, as we upskill people um, into new jobs. There are incredible job opportunities out there. Um, and uh, we, we need those employees desperately. Um, not everyone needs a bachelor's degree uh, to get a a high paying job in this state and uh, we've been for too many years kind of forcing our kids into people feel bad if they're if they're going to a tech institution or, or, or there's some sort of stigma attached if they're not going to college and then too many kids drop out and they don't have a degree and uh, all, all they have is student debt and that's not healthy either so we really need to change that perception and, uh, and encourage people to upskill the other place we need to do is lower the cost of housing quite simply um, we've been having uh, some incredible conversations and meetings with the, the private sector about doing just that um, Ivory Homes is, is working with experts across the country. Uh, and, and really, there's three areas where we can innovate around housing. One is in the way we build houses, the cost of construction, uh, to help lower that cost of construction to, to make homes more affordable. The second one is innovation in finance. Um, we, we don't have much innovation in the way that we finance homes, but finding ways to allow more people access to capital so that they can get into, uh, into a home. And then third, it's the regulatory piece. Um, government does... Uh, uh, does increase the price of housing um, every time we place additional regulations or fees on, uh, on housing. It just gets more expensive and it gets harder for people to get into housing. And so we, we have to work with, uh, with, with our, our local municipalities uh, to, to re-examine the way that we, uh, that, that we, we put regulatory um, costs on housing that are increasing the, uh, the price and keeping people from being able to get into housing. But at working on all three of those, we can significantly lower uh, the cost of housing while increasing, uh, again, the, the ability of people to get into great housing here in our state. Thank you. Uh, next, we'll go to Karina. All right. When, when my family moved to Cache Valley, there were not very many homes to rent, and we felt the housing inventory was low. But after renting in Las Vegas and seeing the housing market, market collapse, we were reluctant to buy a home right away. We rented and looked at all our options, and luckily we found a home to buy. So I understand the struggle people feel in different housing markets. And I agree with what Lieutenant Governor Cox said about the need for education. I think apprenticeships, trades, technical college, and higher education should all be presented as honorable options for students, and maybe in junior high and early in high school. Um, Utah needs businesses with careers for employees instead of just jobs, as, as Chris mentioned too. Utah already has a great network of small business development centers, and we should market those centers across the state to increase business development. Businesses will need to start paying employees, employees more because employees will go elsewhere. And I agree with Chris on unions and increasing the minimum wage. Um, I think public, private, and nonprofit partnerships are important. The Utah Housing Coalition is a great resource on workforce housing and low-income housing. 
They're a great advocacy group and they are working on policies and programs at the state and local level. Crossroads Urban Center and the Coalition of Religious Communities recently released a report on child homelessness in the state of Utah and discussed its recommendations for improving outcomes for children and parents who have experienced homelessness. The state of Utah has a commission on housing affordability and which I've noticed their work over the last several years, which I admire. And there's professional organizations that are working on the forefront of both infrastructure and housing, such as the Congress for the New Urbanism and Strong Towns. Yesterday, I was able to watch the Ivory Homes webinar, which uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox mentioned Ivory Homes. I'm impressed with their work. They have a hack a house 24 hour style competition every year with students to create to tackle the affordable housing crisis. So students in, are encouraged to engage with leading voices in an exploration of housing affordability. So they innovate to help find solutions for uh, vulnerable populations and Ivory Homes also has an innovation prize. So I'm impressed with their work. Um, so you can see the public, private, and nonprofit partnerships are very important. And Utah demographics are changing. Um, I serve as a Nibley Planning Commissioner. We recently worked on an accessory dwelling unit ordinance, so I'm proud of that uh, work. So there's creative things that we can do for housing solutions. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, we'll end up with you, uh, Deidre. Thank you. Um, well, I, I don't have a ton to add to, to this really good discussion. This is a, is a really important issue. Um, the, the two pieces of this, the, the, the economic um, wage piece uh, and, and, the, and the housing affordability piece, and both, both pieces uh, are, are really important. Um, and both pieces really do go hand in hand. Um, I uh, recently was in Moab, and it was interesting to visit with um, the people that work there at the restaurants. And they were telling me that they can't even afford uh, to live in the city in which they work uh, because the housing prices are so high. So I know that this is a, is a concern in, in other areas as, as well as it is in, in Cache Valley. And part of this is, as the Lieutenant Governor mentioned, is, is working with our local governments to make sure um, that we're, we're kind of getting out of the way of, of uh, market innovation. Um, and I'll give you a, a specific example. In my hometown where I live, Spanish Fork, um, there was kind of a, a, a real, some stiff regulation around mother-in-law apartments or accessory apartments. And they were only permitted in a few uh, spots inside the, the city limits, um, mostly in the inner, inner part of our, you know, around our main street. And, and a, a year ago, there was a, a big debate over this. We, we could see that we were running into a housing crisis. We're a, a growing city um, and we're running into an affordability issue. And so um, our city council and, and they, with, lots of public meetings and inputs, they decided to, to expand out um, the access to, to building mother-in-law or accessory apartments onto people's homes, um, which we'd have to do a lot of that uh, in order to really solve the housing crisis, but um, that's just one piece of it. As local governments um, get innovative and, and look and revisit their regulations, I think that we really can um, make some of these changes. Again, um, Another part of this is, is just changing our expectations. The younger generation that's coming up, they don't necessarily want a quarter acre lot and a single family home. Um, so we, we do need to think about that changing style and the changing demographic as we're moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Boy, that just hour just flew by. Uh, in just a jiffy, it seems like. Um, I just want to reiterate a thank you to our candidates for coming and spending this hour with us today. Um, we really appreciate that. Uh, again, this was uh, broadcast Facebook on Facebook Live. It'll be uploaded to YouTube, and then you can also get it at our podcast. 
Cache Valley Insider, which we are uh, pleased to, to be able to give you this. And we know that a lot of people will listen to this afterwards uh, if they didn't join us today. So thank you very much and good luck to each of you. Thanks for listening to the Cache Valley Insider. For more conversations, listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found.